All right, good morning, church. Good to see all of you here this morning. Good to hear your voices as we praise the Lord together. And so we're going to continue worshiping. I hope you got a Bible with you. If you would open it up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Uh, Mark, chapter 9, while you're turning there, any guests who are with us this morning? Thank you for being here. It's a privilege to have you. We're, we're overjoyed that you're here with us this morning. I hope you come away encouraged from our time as we study Scripture together. We're wrapping up really this series, uh, Encounters with Jesus. Just a heads up, we're going to be starting a new series um, next week, and we're going to an Old Testament book called the Book of Esther. And I'm really excited. Look, this is a, a story that maybe many of you are familiar with. Maybe some of you, if you've not read the, much of the Old Testament, maybe you're not familiar with the story of Esther, just this brave young woman. And the Lord uses her in the midst of very unstable times, but he upholds her. And you see in the midst of unstable times, you see this upholding grace of a faithful God. I think it's gonna be super encouraging. I think it's gonna be timely for us. So I hope you'll join us next Sunday as we dive into the Old Testament book of Esther. But uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, we're still in this series, so I'm going to wrap this up this morning, Mark 9, and I'm going to start reading in verse 30. If you would follow along, I'm going to read out loud for us. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So as Rocky said a moment ago when he was leading us in prayer, this is Connect Sunday. Connect Sunday is a great opportunity for us to remember who we are as a church, what we're about as a church. We are a church that loves Jesus, we are growing in Jesus, and we are making disciples of Jesus. We see in the New Testament this threefold call of the church to worship, nurture, and mission. That's, that's who we are, that's what we're about because that's the instructions we get. Those are our marching orders from Jesus in the New Testament. But what happens when we get off track? Right, we, we, there's a hymn that's been sung for centuries now, and it says, prone to what? Wander. <laughs> prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We have this inclination, this penchant to go astray, right? So, so what happens when we get off track? And I think that's what 
this text is in the Bible for. It's Jesus' response when his disciples get off track. It's his tenacious grace saying, you did it again. You, you wandered again, and I want you back on track. I'm going to use you for my glory, and I need to get you back on track. It's a wonderful text for us. So we're going to see this story is in the Bible to cultivate in us, here's the big idea, kingdom attitudes that will mobilize us for kingdom mission. Kingdom attitudes that will mobilize us for kingdom mission. So we see two things we're going to unpack here this morning. Kingdom attitude, point number one, stay low. It's the attitude of disciples. Stay low. So what's going on in our text? We're just going to get our eyes on it and think about it together. So Jesus is flying under radar at this point in his ministry. He's on his way to the cross, and he's flying under radar. You see that in verse 30. Look down in verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. So he's flying under radar. He's, he's spending these last months, perhaps some, some scholars think that this is probably six months away from the crucifixion. So these are the last moments he has with his disciples and he's like, the crowds are gone. I'm gonna work one more miracle in chapter 10. I'm gonna heal Bartimaeus and it's just us. Everything else, all of the other interactions these next six months are just me and you guys because I'm preparing you for the mission. When I go to the cross, which is what he announces in the beginning of our text, he's going to the cross, the mission falls to you. Now he's gonna say later on, and we're gonna remember this when we recite the Great Commission, I will be with you always to the end of the age. But in a significant sense, the mission does fall to these disciples, which probably isn't encouraging in one sense if you're Jesus and you're walking toward Capernaum and right after you tell them about your ensuing death, what do you hear them saying behind you? You hear them arguing about who's the most awesome disciple. It's like, you guys aren't picking up what I'm putting down. I literally was just telling you about my death and you literally are arguing about who's most awesome. Somehow the message isn't getting through, right? And actually that, in Mark's gospel, that happens each time. So you see there in your text, probably in your Bible about verse 30, you have some kind of heading that says, mine says, the second prediction of his death. So in Mark's gospel, Jesus predicts his death three times with his disciples. And each time he tells them I'm gonna die, they do the wrong thing. They reveal we are not on the same page. What happens in, in chapter eight is the first time he predicts his death. He says, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna suffer. And Peter does what? Rebukes him. That's, you know, Jesus, I, I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. And it doesn't involve you dying on a cross. So that's not the way you're going. Uh, noble intentions, but that's not what we're doing, right? And then Jesus has to turn and say, get behind me, Satan, right? So that's, that was the first time, didn't go great. Look, I'm gonna try it again here in chapter nine, and then he's gonna try it again in, in chapter 10. When he does it in chapter 10, predicts his suffering, uh, James and John start arguing for who gets cabinet positions in the new administration. How do they do that? They, they say, do we get to sit, could we ask you for, just, could we ask you to get to sit on your right and on your left when you set up headquarters and you sit on your throne can we be on either side of you and Jesus like it's, it's just not getting through right and so that was the that was the first time that's the third time and then we're in the second time and here Jesus talks about his death and they're afraid to add they don't even want to dig into that they don't even want to ask him anymore it says because they're afraid to ask him more about that so instead they start arguing behind him they're on their way they're walking somewhere to Capernaum and they're arguing and they finally arrive in Capernaum and, uh, and look at verse 33. Jesus asked this question, what were you arguing about on the way? 
Um, when you were little, how long did it take you to realize that sometimes when your parents ask questions, they already know the answer? Right? I, remember my, I remember my mom, I don't know why I remember this, but I broke the blinds in my brother and I, Paul, we shared a, a bedroom our whole, until we went to college. And uh, I broke the blinds when I was a little kid, accidentally. And uh, mom comes in and she says, who broke the blinds? And I pointed to Paul. And uh, I don't remember how she got to the bottom of it, but I do remember whatever it was that she said next, inside my mind, there was this screaming voice that just said, how'd she know? (laughs) Somehow they just know. And and Jesus says, what were you arguing about? And he knows the answer, but he's just gonna make them say it. And you you can tell that there's awkwardness there. Look at verse 34. They were silent when he asked that question because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Here's something for us to think about. Jesus often asks uncomfortable questions. God ever ask you uncomfortable questions? You know, God is the ultimate author above the human authors of the scripture. He is speaking to us, his people, in the text of God's word. And you could just read through God's word and sometimes God asks you questions that have thorns in them, that have barbs in them. You know, you're just reading through. It's your daily reading time and you pull up to Romans chapter 14, you get to verse 10, you're just having a quiet time and and God says in Romans 14, 10, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you despise them? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That is God through the apostle Paul, not just pulling the Romans into a moment of correction, pulling us into a moment of correction. This isn't just history, right? This is, this is God engaging our hearts. You come to 1 Corinthians chapter four. You're just reading your daily Bible reading plan. And then here comes this question. What do you have that you didn't receive, Matt? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? That's a, that's a barbed question. That's not a fun question. You get to Galatians. There are lots of really awkward questions in the book of Galatians, if you're familiar with that book. Here's one of them, Galatians chapter three, verse two. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? It's a rhetorical question. It's a burn, right? I, I did a word search on all the did you do you questions in the New Testament where, where the, the, the text just says, do you or did you? And, and I'll just say to you real quick, and we're gonna go through all of them. They're not comfortable questions. They're all uncomfortable questions, right? So why does God ask uncomfortable questions? Because we are prone to wander. He asks uncomfortable questions because we get off track and by his word and through his spirit, he's adjusting our attitude to bring about a kingdom attitude to mobilize us for kingdom mission. That is essentially what's going on here. So when Jesus says, what were you arguing about back there? It says, again, they were silent because they were arguing about who's the greatest. And again, you you see how off track they are when you bear in mind where Jesus is going and what Jesus just said, right? Six months from now, Jesus will be hanging on the cross. The soldiers will be auctioning his clothes to the highest bidder. 
and they're arguing right now about who's the greatest. Today, this day, six months before that day, they're arguing about who can build the biggest ministry platform. And Jesus does what? He redefines greatness for his disciples. He redefines greatness. That's what's going on in our passage. Look at verse 35. If anyone wants to be first, so you're talking about greatness, you want to be first? He must be last and servant of all. And he took a child. Now there's a kind of enacted parable. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to him, them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. We saw in another passage a few weeks ago in this same series where Jesus says, let the children come to me for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. And we saw there, so I'm not going to belabor the point or unpack that all over again, but children were not looked at sentimentally in the first century. It's not like, you know, they didn't have the Disney Channel and the Kids' Choice Awards. They didn't really care what kids chose uh, or what kids thought. So that was not the cultural environment. This wasn't a sentimental moment, right? Um, This was Jesus saying, let me choose an illustration of the least of these and say, you honor him, you honor me. That's how this works now. You dishonor him, you dishonor me. You honor him, then you honor me, and if you honor me, you honor the one who sent me. That's, that's how this works. He says, that's greatness in my kingdom, is welcoming the lowly. It's showing compassion to the least of these. So Jesus creates a culture of welcome. This is the one who welcomes him welcomes me. It's a, it's a new sense, a definition of true hospitality, of compassion, of mercy that's on display. You may remember Jesus teaching in Matthew's gospel, late in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 25, where he says, what you've done, he uses a number of different illustrations, what you've done to the least of these, you did it to me. You didn't realize it, but when you fed the hungry, you were feeding me on the last day. It'll all be clear. When you visited those in prison, guess who that was? That was me. It was as if you did it to me, as if you were visiting me. When you clothed the naked, it was as if you were clothing me. And then he goes on, and there's a barb in it because he says, and when you didn't visit those in prison, you didn't visit me. When you didn't clothe the naked, you didn't clothe me. Uh, Several years ago, a pastor uh, performed a kind of compassion experiment before preaching Matthew 25, that passage I was just referring to. He was gonna preach that text, but he has a compassion experiment. And that particular morning in that church, there was a homeless man who walked in the door of, of the church building. And the homeless man came all the way down front. Everybody avoided him. And he sat right there on the very first row. And the people stood and they sang their songs Everybody averted their eyes. Everybody pulled their children close. And nobody recognized who that person was until the homeless man on the first pew walked up the stairs to the pulpit and opened to Matthew 25. And it was the pastor in disguise. And he said, and he read this text, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. And I can tell you, I can imagine, Matthew 25 hit different that morning, right? It landed in a new way. Familiar text, but it landed in a new way. The early church was a strange place in the first century world because the gospel did exactly what John the Baptist announced it would do. Jesus is gonna come and get ready because everything's gonna be turned upside down. He says, here's what happens. There's gonna be a leveling. 
Every valley will be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. That's going to be the effect of the gospel. Or read later in the New Testament, the writer James, who says, the proud will be humbled and the humble will be exalted. There's a great massive leveling that the gospel brings about. Or the apostle Paul, who said shocking words in the book of Galatians when he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You don't say that in the first century. There is neither slave nor free. You're blasting the hierarchies to smithereens. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, since you are all one in Christ. Those were mind-blowing statements in the first century. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You read the New Testament, and that's what you see over and over. I love picturing the very first gathering of the, of the fledgling young church called the Church at Philippi. And you know who the first three people who walked into the first Sunday gathering, the Church at Philippi? It was a wealthy clothing designer woman named Lydia. It was a Roman law enforcement officer. And it was a former demon-possessed slave girl. It was maybe the weirdest small group in the history of the church. <laughs> Can we keep Christianity weird? <laughs> right? What, what, what would that look like if we embraced this beautiful, leveling work of the gospel, right? What was weird then is Jesus was saying, there's a new definition of greatness, there's a new definition of compassion. Jesus is marching to the cross and he's saying, follow me. So the question for us is, have we taken up our cross and are we following him? Are we, have we embraced his definition of compassion, his kingdom agenda for our lives, his definition of true greatness? Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you came in here this morning, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And I don't want to mislead you I don't want to give anybody the impression that to follow Jesus is just this easy coasting down the road kind of thing. He asks for everything. He gives us what we need the most, which is redemption and forgiveness through his shed blood on the cross. There's nothing you need more than to be forgiven by a holy God through the blood of Jesus on the cross. But the moment your eyes are open to that reality and you say, I'm for he'll offer forgiveness to me, he'll offer mercy to me, he says, yes, I'll offer mercy to you. Take up your cross and follow me. That's the life of the Christian. I hope you embrace it. I hope the Holy Spirit turns the lights on this morning. You say, he'll forgive me. I, I want that. I want redemption. I want forgiveness. I'm all in. I'm repenting. I'm believing. I'm following, right? Now that I see him for who he is, I'm ready to follow. If, in other words, what, what did disciples say over and over when they were regenerated in the New Testament is they basically said, if servanthood is the new greatness, show me where I can serve. If washing people's feet is the new call of disciples, show me where the towels and the bowls are. It's the life of the Christian. Kingdom attitude is stay low and then the kingdom mission is stick together. Stay low and stick together. Verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his 
reward. So what's going on here? Here, these 12 disciples, they see this person casting out demons in the name of Jesus, which is one of the purposes for which Jesus sent them into the world. He calls them to himself in Mark chapter three, and he says, here's why I've called you. I want you to be with me. I wanna send you out to preach, and I wanna send you out to cast out demons. So that's what we do, right? That's what the 12 do. Why is this guy doing it? Who authorized him? Where are his credentials? Let me see your ID, right? You, you don't get to cast out demons. I know this person's free, but we need to card you, right? And Jesus is basically saying, you can follow his rationale and his reasoning here, and he's basically saying, wait, what? why would you stop him? Why are we stopping this guy? So the demon is gone. This person is free from the oppressive power of evil, and you want this guy to stop this kind of work? Why, because he didn't have your jersey with the 12 written on the back? Jesus is confronting, right? It's a, it's a, you got off track again. There you went and did it again. Come on back over here. That's the team. The team is setting people free in my name. That's what we're doing. That's what I called you to do. I'm glad that's happening. Wherever it's happening in my name, I'm glad that's happening. You know, so some of the churches in our city that God is using in wonderful ways, we have theological disagreements with some of them on this point or that point. And some of those points of disagreement are fairly important points of theological disagreement. I'll put the point in the form of a positive principle for us in your notes. God calls disciples and churches to be together for the gospel. To be together for the gospel. It's one of the reasons I love in our prayer of intercession time when we're naming the names of other churches and just saying, God, thank you for them. Oh, may they prosper, may they flourish, may they see growth and revival, and may they reach their community, our community for Jesus. We're not competing, we're not racing each other to the moon. We're, we're all on the same team, advancing the kingdom of God together. You know, if, if my dad were still alive, we would have some pretty vigorous theological debates, I'm pretty sure about it. Um, my upbringing is I grew up in a Pentecostal church. My dad was a Pentecostal, charismatic preacher. Um, he loved the Lord. He loved the gospel. He loved sharing the good news. If you'd stand in front of him long enough at Tasty Donuts, he would share the gospel. With, he loved God's word. He, he loved the gospel. He also occasionally loved leading our, our little church there on Pontchartrain Boulevard in what we used to call a, a Jericho March. So Jericho March, basically, those were my favorite Sundays. When Jericho March happened, it was like, awesome. That was, that was it, right, as a, as a kid. Because that was like, church wasn't boring anymore. Church, because we all got to get up. The, the music had reached such a moment where we were praising God and we were so excited about what he's done for us in the cross. And, and somebody would just get this thing started and they would just start doing this kind of jumping little dance thing and they would go all the way around the pews. Now, this is a much bigger room, but it, they'd go all the way around the whole pews thing and Everybody would just be celebrating and just doing this jig and going around the entire building, right? And I, was, I loved Jericho March, right? There was never a plan for it's going to be Jericho March Sunday. It feels like a Jericho March kind of day. It, it would just, it would occur to someone that the joy is there and everybody's feeling it, so it's time, right? Somebody would start, next thing you know, the whole congregation, you, you imagine guests on that Sunday, but um, we didn't have a whole lot of guests, uh, <laughs> 
So you fast forward from that moment, years and years later, right, after all those Jericho marches and, and my family joins Brook Hills and I, I went on my first missions trip from Brook Hills to Kenya. And in Kenya, we had a time of worship and the joy was, was we were feeling it. The joy was very real and we were praising Jesus and somebody stood up and started kind of doing this jig thing and, and didn't just dig in place, but started jigging down the aisle. And next thing you know, I, I, I see it happening. And then other people started standing up. I'm like, I know how to do this. <laughs> I, I know what, the, this is a Jericho march. Not sure what you guys call it. This is a Jericho march right here, right? It was, and it's, I'm not trying to brag. I mean, it was just muscle memory, right? I just went right back into what I had done many, many years earlier, right? If Daniel Renstrom attempted a Jericho march here on a Sunday, some of you, maybe some of the ones clapping, you'd be here for it. You would, you would not leave him hanging. You would be joining him. Others, I think probably many, would dance in your hearts. Uh, it, it, there would be a lot of praise going on all here in your mind and in, in your hearts. You would be right there with him. I was, when, <laughs> when I was installed as a senior pastor on that, on that Sunday, my whole extended family came. And they're all pastors who have planted churches. So we're never in the same congregation on a Sunday morning, but that was a pretty big day. So they were all here, right here. And Jim Shaddix is preparing. He's just about to bring all of us up and gather around and pray for me. And my sister leans forward and she just whispers, tongue in cheek, just whispers in my ear. And she says, you know, dad would roll over in his grave if he knew you were becoming a Baptist. <laughs> and I'm not nearly as Baptist as some of you. Heaven help you. Uh, But the point is, isn't it way more fun to be together for the gospel? It's just a joy. That's the joy. Jesus is saying, get back on track here. That guy's not doing anything wrong. I love the fact that he's setting people free in my name. That's what you're here for. Whoever isn't against us, Jesus says, is for us. You notice the difference in, in saying whoever isn't for us is against us. Right? That is a very narrow kingdom, right? Jesus says, whoever isn't against us is on the team. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle, who said, men of all branches of Christ's church are apt to think that no good can be done in the world unless it is done by their own party. <laughs> Let us beware of the slightest inclination to stop and check others merely because they do not choose to adopt our plans or work by our side. We may think our fellow Christians mistaken in some points. We may fancy that more would be done for Christ if they would join us and if all worked in the same way. This must not prevent us rejoicing if the works of the devil are destroyed and souls are saved. Happy is he who knows something of the spirit of Moses when he said, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets? And of Paul when he says, if Christ is preached, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Oh, that's when the kingdom gets fun, becomes a joy. So Brooke Hills, a couple of things very briefly. What happens when we stay low and stick together? Two things. We experience more and more grace. <laughs> Why? Because as Martin Luther said centuries ago, grace is like water, it runs to the low place. So when we stay low, here comes grace. You, you want grace? You want more and more grace? I want more and more grace. 
God's word says, you know where you find it? In a place of humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Remember his mercy toward you in Christ. Remember how patient he's been toward you. And second, we become less angry, more thankful, and more unified. Less angry, more thankful, more unified. Just two quick things that I want to share. Um, Two of the greatest hymn writers in the history of the church lived virtually at the same time. At least they had overlapping years in the early 1700s. And that was Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts. Wesley and Watts had significant theological differences. Matter of fact, some suppose that some of the hymns that they wrote were written as a kind of debate against each other. One was responding to the theology of the other one in the songs that they were writing. And so it was Watts who would die first. He died in 1748. And it's reported that somebody was there at the bedside of Isaac Watts and just said, hey, Watts, do you think you'll see Wesley in heaven? To which Watts said, no. And then he smiled and he said, he'll be too close to the throne. John Calvin and Philip Melanchthon had significant theological differences and it did not ruin in any way the deep, deep friendship that they had. So much so that when Melanchthon wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, guess who got the privilege of writing the foreword? John Calvin. The gospel, friends, it softens us. The gospel makes us thankful. It makes us joyful. The gospel gets us back on track. It it enables us to stay low and to stick together with this kind of kingdom attitude that does what? It mobilizes kingdom mission. 